Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. I think you're really, really going to enjoy him. Um, I don't know him very well, uh, but he just exudes such a warm heart, and uh, there's a depth and a quality to it, so I really appreciate that. And um, uh, he's a dad. He loves his family, and uh, he loves art. But more than any of that, he really has this amazing experience of God's redemptive work in his life, where the redemptive uh, narrative has overtaken the specific story. So that's a really cool thing to be able to say about somebody, and I'm excited for you to hear from him. Rick, come on up. Thanks, Pastor. Appreciate it. The Proverbs 18.12 says, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Um, I was humbled at a very early age by uh, heavy addiction to cupcakes. <laughs> Isn't that epic? That is great. I was born Charles Richard Newell. Uh, I was named after my dad's best friend in college who was black. He was third in the nation in scoring in Division I basketball, and he was a Harlem Globetrotter, and so it was always a cool thing to know that I've been named after him. Um, as we were growing up, uh, my dad, this guy named Jerry on the left, uh, discipled my dad, which means just teaching him how to live, live life and read the Bible and pray and be submissive to him, like point out errors in his life. And, um, and so Jerry believed in the power of multiplication. Uh, legend has it that the maker of the game of chess brought it to the ruler of India, and the ruler loved it so much that he said, ask whatever you wish and it is yours. And so the maker said, well, I want one grain of rice for the first square, two for the second, four for the third, all the way through the board. And he said, it's yours. Uh, and as you can probably guess, he just signed away his kingdom. Uh, if you did that and you lined up all the grains of rice from end to end, it would go from here to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, that little red dot, if you can see it, not the other two, those are planets. Uh, and back. Um, it is the vehicle in which Jesus chose to change the world, investing well in just a few. Uh, it has, it's not big and sexy, but it is powerful, powerful punch to it. So my dad invested in this guy named Greg, and Greg invested in this guy named Rick, who I think I'm going for like a Don Johnson there look back then. <laughs> uh, and then I started to, to mentor some guys just because I saw the power of the generational aspect of that. Um, and also when I was in college, I worked at Cascades Camp as a counselor. I was, Sabo was my camp name. So that was my first touch uh, with the Covenant Church. Um, but I went to college and built a good career in technology. Um, and then about 15 years ago, I had a major meltdown. It was uh, sort of the perfect storm in life. The slide is blank, is black, because that's what life was like. I was working a working for a platinum support for a big computer company, a graveyard shift while I was trying to work at day and sleep at night. Uh, so mission critical support for Charles Schwab, Fidelity, FedEx, those big ones. Uh, and I started to get insomnia. And if none of you have ever had insomnia, you, don't, you won't be able to relate to how bad it is. But imagine how you feel if you miss one night's sleep. How do you feel? And then imagine that for a week, a month, three months, and it was six months for me, and it brought me to a really bad place. It is still, as you can tell, really, um, really wrecked me. I was full of a lot of pride and arrogance, and God used it to really bring me low, but I, it was a point where I was thinking about taking my own life. I just couldn't handle it anymore, 
uh, and my parents were asking good questions of me, and uh, they said, well, you still believe in God, don't you? And I was honest and just said, I, I don't know what I believe anymore. Uh, and they said, okay, we're coming to Denver. And so they flew in Christmas Eve. My mom packed a turkey in her suitcase. And, and they took me up into the mountains and took care of me like a little baby. They tucked me in. They fed me. Uh, and that was sort of the beginning of the healing process. It, it took about three months before I could sleep through the night. And I still, I still can't sleep. I, it's, I've never been the same since. Uh, but it honestly took about two years before it felt like you couldn't just, you know, blow me over emotionally. Uh, and again, if you haven't had insomnia, you'll never really understand. But as I put my life back together, I, I thought about I want to do what makes me feel awake. And I knew the computer career did not. Uh, and so instead, I went to work at the Rotary Boys and Girls Club here in the Central District of Seattle. This is me wearing some fake teeth, hanging out with some kids. Uh, and I worked there seven years, and it was literally some of the best years of my life. I absolutely loved it. Uh, the love of Jesus went really deep into my heart there. Uh, I met my wife there. I did it first service. I don't know why. She's much more beautiful. She's right over there. She's much more beautiful than that. Uh, and this is our family. Uh, when we're all put together, we're not that neat. We're not <laughs> that tidy. Uh, but this is us. This is, other than Jesus, this is my everything. These are our four boys. Luke is the oldest. Luke and Eli are right there. Henry and Charlie is the littlest one. Um, but while I was working at the Boys and Girls Club, I, I saw kids I really cared about getting into armed robbery and murder and just a whole bunch of bad stuff. And I knew from experience that mentoring would help them. It wouldn't help all of them, but I knew I had a rough high school years. They were tough for me, and Greg really helped me, and I knew that could help too. I knew as a white guy, it'd be kind of hard for me to do it, so we left and started this mentoring program called MUST, Mentoring Urban Students and Teens. Mentoring is a must, uh, and this is not a plug for MUST. It's just part of the story, <laughs> all right? Afterwards, I kind of, last service felt like I was maybe plugging a little bit. This is us early on. Uh, and what we do is we find African-American guys who are in college, like the one in the back, and we pay them to mentor African-American guys who are genuinely in danger of dropping out of high school, and it's a four-year mentoring program. The younger guys look at the older for four years and begin to think, you know, he comes from the same place I do. If he can do it, I can do it. Uh, and we're in our eighth year, and there's kids we know would have dropped out of high school who are going to college. This is us uh, last year. And this is us just a couple weekends ago. You, you see the visual of the power of multiplication, right? Life investing on life. This is that same group of people, uh, those guys that I discipled in high school years later. Uh, them again with even another family missing. You get the visual of just investing well and just one person can really affect a whole bunch of people. So it says Proverbs 18, 12 again, before a downfall, the fart is the fart. <laughs> The heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. I would not wish what happened to me on anybody, but looking back, I see there's no way I would be doing what I'm doing now, and God needed to bring me through that, if that makes sense to you. So I leave you with two questions. What makes you feel awake? How did God make you? Go after that with all your heart and don't care what anybody else thinks about it. And number two, who is mentoring you? Um, your whole life, right now, Ray Brook, he goes here. He is mentoring me. I meet with him once a week, uh, and he helps me be a better dad, a businessman, a husband. Uh, he, he speaks truth into my life, and uh, it's really valuable to me. So thanks a lot. appreciate it. Sorry, i got to read. <laughs> uh, we're going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 18. 
If you want to turn in your Bibles, you got them there or on the screen. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gifts makes room for him and brings him before the great. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Amen. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. My name is Peter, and uh, I am one of the pastors here. And today we continue our series in the book of Proverbs, and we are at chapter 18 today. The title of the series is Life Pro Tip, and we're going to get some tips today. The title of the sermon is Wise Counsel. I wonder how many of us actually want wise counsel. We've been talking about wisdom, you know, in sort of general ways. We've said things like you have to be hungry, you have to be seeking it. Uh, and so some verses that uh, Rick read for us reflect that. So I won't go into that, but they're there uh, as a way of reminding us. But I want to get more specific, asking the question, how does wisdom come to us? Uh, there is a lot of wisdom out there. But the scriptures seem to uh, distinguish between human wisdom and what the Bible calls wisdom from above. And so there are sort of layers or uh, hierarchies to wisdom. And there's this wisdom that is precisely what you need when you're going through something. There's a truth that's once you illuminate it, it just makes so much sense. What is that? How does it come and my uh, understanding, the first point, is that it really comes through other people. That God chooses primarily to dispense his wisdom through other people. I've been a pastor for 24 years now. And I have an observation, a pattern that I've picked up in the people that I have come across. And over these decades, I have learned this one thing. That most human beings, actually I want to scratch that, all human beings love darkness rather than light. That we don't love wise counsel as much as we think we do. We love convenient counsel. We love counsel that echoes what we already think. We want to hear things that rationalize and justify how we're already living what we already think and believe, ways that are convenient to us. Look at verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. This has been my observation and experience, that you and I, as much as we believe sincerely on some level that we want the truth, in reality, we know we can't handle the truth. We don't want it. And so Jesus, experiencing human beings uh, for the first time, 
as a human being. He says this in John 3.19. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. I know, it's a little bit offensive. He's saying that your actions are evil. Is that offensive to you? Your actions are evil. My actions are evil. And because of that, we love darkness rather than light. We don't want light shed on it. We don't want wise counsel. So I feel a little bit like I have to prove my point here. Just a bit. How many of you would love to televise 24-7 what you're thinking? The brain is a crazy thing. It does what it does. We almost have to distance ourselves from what the brain does. It's got its process, you know. And the way it gets to where it gets to, it's just madness. I don't want that televised. I need that to remain dark. Okay. Uh, what if, man, listen to me. What if there was uh, a, a camera that was tracking your eyeballs and it televised above your head everything you're looking at all the time as you're walking down the street? Would you want that? That silence there, I think, means no. <laughs> because we have a need to love the darkness because we know our deeds are evil, our motives are evil. How about your money? What if, would you be willing to share a long list of all the things that you spent every cent on? Would you like the benefit of wise counsel from this church? Next week, our storyteller is going to share the list of everything they've bought in the last year. You, you're going to do it. You, you're going to tell that story. Would you want to tell that story? No. I think I gave Al a heart attack right now. <laughs> because our deeds are evil. We love darkness, so we want to isolate ourselves. Uh, I've learned that women are more comparative thinkers, that they compare themselves more to other people. Would you like, women, a list of all the ways and all the people and all the things you compare yourself about, televised for everybody to see? Would that be fun? No, it's not. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. That's true. We want to justify ourselves. What about politically? Do you really want everything you actually believe to be televised? No. We love darkness. We love echo chambers. We love things that help justify and rationalize and bolster the things, the ways, the thoughts, the actions. That's what it means to be human. I have learned over the years, that people love darkness rather than light. But I have also learned that I am no good on my own. I'm really not. I desperately need other people. I want to tell a story about this church. I've been a church planner for most of my career. And what that means is that I dream up an idea for how to be a brand new church. And then I start selling people on this vision and then we develop a core team. 
And then this core team starts adding the second layer of people. And then that layer of people starts adding a third layer of people. And we start growing as a church. And I did this six times. And I was a very uh, passionate person. I was idealistic. And I just loved going for things. And I worked really hard. But one thing that I wasn't aware of at the time is that I was just giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. I was seeing everybody else, but nobody was seeing me. I didn't even know that was a thing. I thought maybe even especially as an immigrant that if you're going to be a leader, all you have to do is to give, that nobody gets to give to you. And so, yeah, we had things in place, you know, but I really felt like my job was to give. And as a result of not being given to, not being seen, uh, I entered into a deep, deep season of burnout for about six years. And at the center of which, I really began, just from a sheer place of depletion, began to doubt the goodness of God, because he wasn't good to me. He was good through me to other people. He wasn't good to me. I was invisible. And so I, I uh, began to doubt the goodness of God, and then I began to doubt the existence of God, because it, it's really terrible to live in a world where God is not good. And so it's, it was a lesser evil that he doesn't even exist. And I was preaching as a self-labeled atheist for two years, every week, planting churches. That's really no way to be. But I share all of that to make the point about this. This is the first church, Evergreen, in 2012, September 1st, when I started here. That was the first time that I found myself in what I now call a hospitable environment, do you know this week, some of you may have seen the headlines yourself, we discovered in our galaxy the very first other planet besides this third rock from the sun, a planet with water in its atmosphere. It's like a super earth, like a super huge giant planet that may potentially, I mean, this is the closest we've ever come to, to another planet that might be able to sustain life. I saw that. I read like the first couple of paragraphs and I just started thinking about this church. Why have I been able to set a personal record here? I'm in my eighth year here at this church. I've never been anywhere this long before. I've doubled my last record. And I think it's because here at Evergreen, I found a hospitable environment, a planet that's capable of sustaining life, one that's so different than what I had experienced prior to coming here. I was in the midst of a church that saw me. I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell the stories of all the ways that this church has taken care of me and my family over the years. I'm, I, I'm embarrassed because most pastors don't get it. It's crazy how well you've taken care of me. You've provided, given to me. Oh, Peter, do you, do you need help figuring out how to have conversations? Let's get you some coaching training. Oh, Peter, do you love learning? Let's get you some education. Oh, Peter, do you like books? Here's an unlimited book budget. Read all you want. Last year, I read 37 books, and you pay for every single one of them. <laughs> Thank you so much for loving me. And besides just loving me, loving the church together. Do you know what it's like to have a bunch of people who are invested all in on church and who bear the weight of church, who will sit across from me and think about the church together and dream about how we can improve? Bear the brunt of that, weight of that, to shoulder that. 
They're not even being paid to do it. For no good reason at all, people love this church and care for it. And that's such a gift to professional pastors like myself. I've literally never experienced that personally until I came here. And I want to thank you for that. I'll always be grateful for that love you've shown me and this church. Hospitable. But here's another thing. For many years I said this, and now I apologize for saying this. And uh, I will never say this again. This is my last time. Here it is. I used to tell people when they say, how's that turnaround church doing? I would say, man, they love to criticize. I have heard either about me or about the church more criticism from these people. That's you guys. These people in one week than I have in all my years of ministry put together. And that's true. But here's not looking back. Here's how I understand it. You were not criticizing me or criticizing the church. You were invested and you were offering love. When you love someone or love something, by definition, what you are doing is you are offering contradiction. If you claim to love somebody but you never contradict them, you're not loving them. They are just convenient to you. You're just managing them. You're just maybe using them. But if you love them at some point, love will lead you to confront that person. Love will lead you to contradict that person. Because love, by definition, is contradiction. We are where we are today because we all decided to love this church together. We decided to care about it in such a way that we were going to contradict the way it was going. We contradicted many, many things, cultural things, decisional things about this church. And so we were able to successfully turn around. It would not have happened without love. And so here is the first way that God is going to give you wise counsel in your life is through community, through other people. And my question to you is this. Do you have a community in your life that has been invited to be intentional with you to contradict you on a regular basis? Let me use public shaming for God's glory here. Uh, how many of you have a mentor or a mentor figure in your life that you give him permission to who, have, who has been invited to contradict you at least once a month? Let me see a show of hands. The rest of you, you have been shamed. <laughs> shamed in Jesus' name. You need this. You are not going to get the wise counsel that you need. You need to find a hospitable environment who will see you and who has been given the permission to love you by contradicting you. If you don't have time, you have to reallocate your time because this has to be a priority. One way that you can do this, the reason we showed the small group video before uh, I came up to preach is because our new small group season is starting and that is a great way for you to be contradicted every week or every other week for 11 to 12 weeks. We've got we to 
making it into a program so that it's accessible. It's not because we like programs. We're just making it available. So if you say, I don't, mentor, I don't even know what that is. How do I join the small group first? And there you will be seen. There somebody will go, hey, you know what happened to me last week? Somebody said to me, Peter, I love you. And I thought, oh, this is nice. And then they said, you have a nose sticking out of your left nostril. I mean, you have a hair sticking out of your left nostril. And they even offered to pull it out for me. <laughs> That's love. They confronted my self-image, which is, I don't have a hair sticking out of my left nostril. And they said, I beg to differ, Peter. I will bear witness. Where will you get that? Uh, it's going to come by way of mentorship, friendships, criticisms, small groups. I want to give you two more reasons why you need to seek community. Number one, when you feel the emotions of other people, you will know how you are feeling. You have to give people a chance to experience you in the flesh. Last night I was out. Um, at a meeting with uh, Susie and I were out with another couple. And uh, uh, as we sat down, the other person said to me, hey, Peter, are you okay? That was a gift. Somebody said, I see you. I'm, I'm checking in on you. I'm, I'm feeling something. And then that, I, I didn't know. I thought I was fine. And then I just thought about it for a second. and said, oh, how am I doing? How am I feeling right now? So that's... Uh, Reason number two, and reason number three, uh, C.S. Lewis tells this great story. He was part of this group of men, right? And uh, along uh, in that group was himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series, um, and other people. And one of those other people one day uh, passed away. And then C.S. Lewis confesses this. He says, secretly in my heart, I was a little bit excited to get more of J.R.R. Tolkien for myself. You know, the share of the pie was going to be bigger for me because he really looked up to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, he was, C.S. Lewis couldn't get his books, uh, you know, written and, oh, no, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, and then he says this, he says, but then I realized I was not going to get more of J.R.R. Tolkien I was going to get less because there are aspects of J.R.R. Tolkien that only the other guy that died brought out. That's the thing. If you are willing to be together, you get more of everything. I experienced this in my family. You know, I have four kids. And when even one of them is gone, I don't get more of the other three. I get less of everyone in the room because there are aspects of all of us that only that other person can bring out. So when mom's not there, I think dad and the kids are going to have a great time. We're going to break all the rules and eat all the junk food and go to McDonald's and all. Never as fun without Susie because we are all a little bit less. If you love God together, you're going to learn something about God that you would never learn if you were just loving God on your own because you learn about other aspects of God, other experiences of God from other people. We need community in order to get wise counsel, not just about your own problems, but about everything else too. 
So that's number one, seeking community. There is a caveat to this. Uh, verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Just because you belong to some people or a community, it doesn't mean you're getting wise counsel because it doesn't mean you're giving them the right to contradict you. And so let me speak about culture for a second here. Our culture uh, loves the idea of being connected. We do. And I think that's a good thing. But just because you're connected through social media, for example, or through texting, it does not mean that you're actually getting the nourishment that you need from that connection because it's a kind of shallow or false connection that mistakenly makes you check the box. You think you're getting it, but you're not. That's the worst. That's like just eating sugar. And your body for a second thinks it has what it needs because your blood feels good because there's energy streaming, you know, flowing through it. But wait a minute, and you're not going to get what you actually need. And so it's possible for you to feel like you're connected to people because you're being social. But all you're doing is setting up echo chambers for yourself. If you are just in a texting relationship with someone, if you don't like what they say, you just ghost them. Or maybe you say, ha ha, but you're really crying. Like who knows what's going on? Or maybe you just get on your soapbox and you're just offering your opinion and political opinions to the world, but you're not actually in a conversation. You're not actually growing. Nothing of real value is happening. No nourishment is coming through. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. This verse, too, might be the one verse that sums up our primary way of connecting in our culture today, social media and technology. Just we get to express our opinion. That's it. But that's not love because that's not contradiction. A second way that we experience wise counsel is by seeking resources. Verse 11 says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. The point that I want you to take from this verse is this. There are people out there who have way more wealth than you do in terms of wisdom. There are conversations that you're not having right now that might be the key that unlocks whatever point of stuckness you're at. I don't know why you're not seeking resources, but that's what you need. You need some strength. You need wealth. You need help. You need light. I invite you to stop loving the darkness but to seek the light. A third way that we experience wise counsel is by seeking oneness. Now, this verse is a little bit uh, funny in our, you know, cultural sen- uh, with our cultural sensitivities. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Calling a wife a thing just feels like you're objectifying, um, like very literally, doing that but that's not the point of this verse so if that was stumbling you please i invite you to get past that uh there's a a pastor and a leader named uh, peter scazzaro pete scazzaro 
And looking back on his long uh, decades of ministry, like four or five decades of ministry, he says this, one of the most critical things, lessons he's learned, looking back at the mistakes that he's made, is that he didn't live and lead out of a oneness with his spouse. And so this is one of the, like, three pillars in the program that he teaches for leaders is you have to seek to lead and live out of oneness with your spouse. And this has to be defined a little bit, uh, but I would say that this idea of leading from oneness is the essence of the biblical qualification for leadership in the church. That if you are going to claim to lead others, if you are going to live a healthy, joyful, hopeful life, there has to be oneness with your spouse. And this applies to you if you have a spouse. This applies to you if you, were, uh, if you are looking forward to having a spouse or if you had a spouse. You can look back on this and see if it was true. There are ways to be a couple where there is more contention than oneness where there is more contempt than oneness, where you guys are living and thinking more sort of at cross purposes than in oneness. You know, if you don't like each other, if you don't understand each other, if you're not supportive of each other, if there is kind of eye-rolling and disdain, if there's disunity in that relationship, it's going to be underneath everything else in your life. And so living and leading from oneness is really, really, really important. And here, I want to share a little bit of a personal testimony as an example of this. You know, you guys know, uh, if you've been here, that um, Susie and I, we were married 22 years, but there was four years of me pursuing her prior to that. So I'm going to say 26 years. And I've been madly in love with Susie, and I dare say she with me. Uh, for those years. Uh, but there were some things, some areas that we were kind of stuck in ways that we were not one. There wasn't this confident oneness. And we kind of tried to work on it, but we didn't really understand it. We didn't know how to get at it really effectively and sort of just like sustain tension areas. But this last year and a half, it's been really, really difficult for us in many ways, but also also, I can confidently tell you, confess to you, that I feel like we have the best relationship we've ever had. And the, and the way that I would describe it is there's a solidness, there's a oneness that we had not experienced prior. And it feels like such a gift. Just a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, Susie and I were uh, laying down in bed. And I, I said to her, I said, you know, Susie, I feel like... In these 26 years of being in relationship with you, there has never, ever been another day or a week or a season or a year of relationship with you uh, where I would say that I like that relationship better than the relationship we have today. It's, it's like the best. And Susie, Susie said, I feel exactly the same way. I really like our relationship. It feels so solid. It feels so connected. Not necessarily like the same person. The magic of biblical marriage is one plus one equals one. Not one plus one equals two. That's, there's no mystery of marriage there. 
But the great mystery of marriage that the Bible talks about is that idea of oneness. That two people can be reconciled in a healthy way, not codependency, not lack, not a kind of undifferentiation. But two people, two whole people who are made whole in Christ coming together and in humility and in hope becoming one. And then living life out of that is the gift. Now, I happen to think that takes years and years and years and seasons and seasons and lots of ups and downs to get there. But the goal is to get there and to keep trying to get there. And then once you're there, keep maintaining that and improving that and then living and leading and working out of that. Seek oneness because he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, Proverbs says. And I really testify to this. And then we have the next way that I think God gives us wise counsel is by seeking God himself directly. Verse 10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Do you know the value of cutting out the middleman and relating directly with God himself? This is a great invitation that we have. And here's the magic that happens when you seek God personally, individually, just directly coming to God for wisdom is this verse right here. Romans 7, 15 and following says this. This is the apostle Paul who wrote a bulk of the New Testament Bible. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. The point of this, I don't know what this is. This confession, this confusion is this. When Paul is able to be rescued or connected to God himself directly, he's able to separate himself from the problem that he is working through. If you do not bring things before God, you and the problem are one. The problem you have is you. But if you are able to directly confess it to God, it pulls you away from it so you can obtain God's perspective and look at it together and there experience wise counsel. So if you have, let's say, an addiction, but you're trying to sort of do it on your own, but if you are able to say, God, I keep doing this. How should I view this? What's going on? What you're doing is you're sort of separating yourself from the problem. And you're able to, with Paul, say, it's not me that's doing it. There's this sin in me that's doing it. And God says, yeah, it's the sin in you. And you are able to partner up with God and look at it. Have a kind of perspective you cannot have otherwise. And so John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. I'm not at all saying that problems are easy, that 
you have to just pray. I'm never a just pray kind of guy. What I'm telling you is there's a wise counsel that you can have if you are willing to go to God directly. So one of the takeaways is I challenge you, whatever you're dealing with, I would ask you, I would contradict you and say, are you actually bringing that before God directly, yourself? Beyond talking to other people, which is great. I've been talking about it. That's good. But there are times to cut out the middleman altogether and just go to God directly. Now, that's hard to do. And that's why we have the last point, which is seek Jesus as you seek God. Verse 24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The problem with friends is that they're not your brother. And the problem with your brother is they're not your friends. But Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Meaning there's a kind of intimate connection to God himself that you can have through Jesus. That if you're going through some really hard things, his face is going to come up for you. His life story is going to be illuminated for you. That there is God that is near to you who walked the path that you are walking right now, who is intimately acquainted with all your troubles. And the ultimate wisdom that we really, really need is God's love that through Jesus you begin to experience the truthfulness that God loves you. And from that perspective, you think about everything differently. You have wisdom that is indeed wise. I want to end as a prayer this uh, song by uh, uh, the late Rich Mullins, who was a Christian uh, musician, but he was also a man of great character. He lived by the Franciscan vows of chastity and poverty, and he gave all of his millions and millions of dollars away as a successful musician, Uh, and he just lived with the clothes on his back in a trailer, traveled the country, and uh, just before he died, he stepped into an abandoned church. And uh, he wrote these uh, 10 songs that, the album that he wrote was called 10 Songs About Jesus. And then he just took out an old tape recorder, hit record, and played these songs. And then that was all he had, and then he died. And so that album, Raw, just reproduced from that tape recording, uh, is out there. And I encourage you to listen to this one song. You can uh, YouTube this, it's out there. It's called Hard to Get by Rich Mullins. And it just speaks to his intimate acquaintance with humanity and our need for wise counsel, given how frail and how needy we are. So I'm going to read these words as a poem and prayer for us as we close. You who live in heaven, hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth, who are afraid of being left by those we love, and who get hardened by the hurt. Do you remember when you lived down here where we all scrape to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared. I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. And I know you bore our sorrows, and I know you feel our pain. And I know that it would not hurt any less, even if it could be explained. 
And I know that I am only lashing out at the one who loves me most. And after I have figured this somehow, what I really need to know is if you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time. We can't see what's ahead, and we cannot get free from what we've left behind. I'm reeling from these voices I keep, that keep screaming in my ears, all these words of shame and doubt, blame and regret. I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. And so you've been here all along, I guess. It's just your ways, and you are plain hard to get. Friends, I invite you to come to God to seek wisdom. Go to each other to find the wise counsel that you need. Amen.